welcome to the Admin Admin Podcast, episode 91, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm John. I'm Stu. I'm Jerry. And I'm Nick. In this episode, we talk to Nick about creating gold build images. We talk about Ansible, Terraform and Pulumi. We talk about net data. And we also talk about Tinkerbell. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, that went well. Yeah, so we've got uh, Nick on as a special guest. (laughs) (laughs) As you can tell, we've had a really good way of messaging Um, or getting people sorted on this podcast tonight. It's been uh, hell. It's been been hell, I think, is the best way to describe (laughs) it. An hour and a half of technical difficulties. Hell is the word for it. Oh, it's been dreadful. It proves we're human. It does prove we're human. And I can I can now tick the box that says I'm not a robot. <laughs> so, Our robots um, can do that now as well, though. So there's a problem. Uh, no. <laughs> so to introduce Nick, Nick is a colleague of mine, and he and I have worked sort of tangent. We've we've followed sort of similar paths um, over the last sort of ten fifteen years or so. And Nick does some very interesting stuff at work, and so I. I collared him a couple of weeks ago and asked him if he'd uh, if he'd be generous enough to spend some time talking to us a li- about a li- li- some of the stuff that he does. So, Nick, do you want to kind of just give us a little bit of a, an, an overview of kind of where you've how you got into the role that you're doing? So, um, I've been a let's call it a Linux engineer for um, quite a while now, and um, some vulnerabilities poke the hill. I've always worked in the security. So on the security periphery, if you want to put it that way, I've always helped people remediate their pen tests and do hardening and configuration and all that sort of stuff. And um, I noticed there was a a problem with quite a large number of servers worldwide and chased it up, found the right people, got them interested. And they said, oh, yeah, that's a good job. Uh, Do you want to kind of do that a bit more? And I went, yeah, all right, why not? Something different, a bit more responsibility, a bit more ownership and stuff like that of issues. And it's kind of moved on from there, really. Some of the work that you kind of mentioned in the intro there is uh, what we call a standardized platform for Linux. Um, and I work with a, another guy that does the Windows side of stuff. But we uh, we do, you know, what most people would kind of think of as uh, gold builds. It's uh, one of the sidelines that I have that I do during the year. So, some my kind of awareness of this stuff is that predominantly when we were working with um, the, the cloud platforms like AWS and Azure, you you kind of tend to go into the AWS or Azure marketplaces or um, sort of software stores, and you get these whatever Microsoft or Amazon are trying to sort of flog you as their their gold brick yeah. images. But then there's there's images from every other person under the sun that, that thinks that their image might be slightly better. Yeah. And obviously you never know, you know, the provenance of any of those images. Yeah. And I was doing a piece of work for one of the vendors that we were looking to integrate stuff with. And I knew that Nick had released some images for for that platform for the various Linux variants that I was working with. And so Nick and I kind of went forward backwards a few times about some of the some of the bits and pieces that were hardened on there. But obviously I mean, you've mentioned to me 
offline that, that a lot of where the, the this standardized image thing came from was about a question of provenance, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So it's difficult. And there's well-known cases, what you get inside your, you know, ECTU image when you spin it up. I mean, uh, there's been quite well-known cases of uh, other stuff being uh, added in there. Um, and, and it's not just, you know, Amin Azure. There's, there's recently, in the last few months, some people, researchers, downloaded every Docker image they could get hold of. And uh, it was quite unsurprising, but surprising to some people, I suppose, how many uh, Bitcoin miners and stuff like that are, uh, are embedded in the Docker images. So you kind of, for, for the work that we do, um, you know, and we're spinning up tens of thousands of machines across the globe each year, then we kind of need to have some kind of assurance that we've uh, we, we've kind of checked everything that we can. So uh, it's, it's it's not too difficult to do for um, you know for the people that are listening in is uh, just kind of check where you're getting your image from. You've got to you've got to ch- trust that that person, that company that you, uh, you you are using that image from. So you know if you've got a, a working relationship with with that company that you're getting that image from, then you know there's there's a bit of trust there, and you know you can kind of if you don't have you know that trust, then you know you're going to have to do a little bit more work. So for for a start, you know if you want Ubuntu, um, do you get it from Canonical or do you get it from a third party? You know, if you need RHEL, you know, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, then more than likely you're going to make sure that the company that's providing that that image for you to use is actually Red Hat themselves. Unless, of course, you know, you, you're purchasing something else on top of it, um, you know, so either, you know, some kind of application image or firewall or something like that, then, you know, you, you'll have that that relationship with, with, uh, with that company. So... It, 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 you had to make those kind of decisions and work from there, really. Hmm. The other thing that you mentioned as well about the, the images that you're producing is that they are quite often, it's not so much that they're hardened, but they are the, the security controls that you apply against them, which I believe it's, is it the CIS standard? Is yeah, the- yeah, it's CIS. So um, it's the CIS benchmarks. So you, you can CIS stand for Center for Internet Security. I think it is. It's a yeah. I think that sounds yeah, about right. It's part. Is it part of Homeland Security or something like that? From that, I'm not know, sure. Some some federal type thing in America, but they're very very. Um, they they produce documentation on obviously benchmarks, as I said, but um, it's it's a load of configuration options that you would then sit down and read the ridiculous uh ridiculously long document uh which the one i've got open right now is 485 pages long nice yeah um and it goes through around about 270 different things that you need to make sure that you've done with your uh, as i've got open here uh red enterprise linux 8 benchmark so you you literally take that document and then um, there are loads of examples in there on, you know, how to do it, what to check for and stuff like that. And then and then you would apply those changes that they, you know, they recommend. Now, the great thing is, if, of course, if you're getting pen tested or, you know, you're worried about people 
hacking your box and stuff like that, then um, these are all the the very obvious um, things that you would uh, you know secure up before you put your machine in a DMZ or something like that. I'm guessing this is the kind of thing you can automate. Absolutely. I guess that's what you're doing. Is, is yeah, it? so the, the, the secret sauce is Ansible. Um, I don't know if that's ever been mentioned before. I'm, I'm an admin. <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we've mentioned it once. Yeah. So um, that, Maybe that's, we should explain it for any new listeners that haven't come across it. I haven't, I haven't heard about Ansible. Um, I've not been listening long enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So the other sideline that I have was a long time ago now was to pick out a automation tool set for uh, the part of the company I was working for, which since has gone a little bit more global. And uh, Ansible was my choice after vetting quite a number of other obvious candidates like um, Puppet and Chef and, and things like that, primarily because it was Red Hat based, just as that, you know, they took it over documentation was good and it was extremely easy to pick up so it was easier for me to teach other people how how to use it and stuff like that Ansible is just an automation tool it has got a lot of modules that you can uh, use to uh, connect to your devices depending on whatever your device is and I'm fairly sure John will tell me uh, jump in here but pretty much any device you can think of um, somebody's written a module for it, or there's already a module kind of there um, provided by Ansible and, and Red Hat. I think I heard a, an interview with Jeff Geerling not too long ago where I think he said there was something like 44,000 modules covering over 120 different areas of computing. Yeah. Is that right? It's, it, it's good. Just a, a quick sideline on, 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 on you know, producing modules. John, John and I worked on um, a cloud platform um, together for a while um, based on OpenStack, and we wrote Ansible modules to uh, do provisioning on that OpenStack uh, cloud platform. Just before anyone gets any ideas about how good my, my coding actually is, Nick wrote all the, mod- all the modules, and then I did some. I, I tried to use them in ways he wasn't expecting, and, then I, had to fix- <laughs> and I then con- and I then had to contact him and say, "I've done this and it doesn't work. Here's a patch that I think should fix it. Can you check it over and make sure I've not I've not written any atrocious py- py- uh, Python?" Yeah. So I was going to say, Ansible modules are the are the bits of Python that actually do the the stuff that Ansible does. Yeah, or, or or it can be um, in other languages. It doesn't. I mean, you can write them in Bash if you really wanted to, um, and I know you can do them in PowerShell and stuff like that if you're doing a lot of uh, Windows work. I did a lot of Windows work last year. It was all in Ansible, but of course, when we were doing um, a lot of inventory control type stuff, uh, not Ansible inventory, but you know, kind of what's installed on this box and who's done what and how's it configured and stuff like that. I, I wrote the whole lot in PowerShell um, and, then, and then just got Ansible to to call the PowerShell. Um, so it was kind of, you know, uh, a lot easier that way. Um, and the, the other thing to kind of explain how the modules are done and, and what we've done is um, the company I work for produces TIN servers, that is, um, and they've got remote access cards on them. So you can turn a, a server on remotely. You can even get, if you know how to do it, um, get that server to boot off a remote 
um, CD-ROM ISO and install itself. So um, we sat down with the APIs, which I think it's called Redfish 2, if anybody's really interested. And uh, we wrote some, some code to uh, remotely boot and install our gold builds. Uh, which was was quite nice, and we we use that, you know, uh, we use that consistently now. Uh, it's quite interesting because if, if you if you go back into the back end of the open um, OpenStack code, similar sorts of works being done, not based on anything that I've done, but um, similar sorts of works being done for uh, you know um, increasing your your OpenStack provisioning of bare metal and stuff like that. So it's uh, Ansible's in, in my role extremely useful and it's kind of you know a bit of a swiss army knife for me because it enables me to do a, a lot of stuff on a lot of boxes and sometimes even quite complex stuff so uh, yeah I, I like it a lot and uh, i don't i do tend to uh, blow the trumpet of uh, of ansible um, throughout the company on how fantastic it is and convince some of my uh, good colleagues who may happen to be on this uh, show at the moment how how wonderful it is <laughs> So you, the, the show you mentioned, John, earlier was on the um, wizarding at the with the guy about Ansible was the um, self-hosted show. We we'll put a link in the show notes yeah, for that. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so what's the difference? I was understand that version three of Ansible's been released now, hasn't it? Yeah. And does that is that majorly prob? Does that changes anything majorly, or how? Because it's like Galaxy or something. I don't. I'd only just kind of heard stuff. I think 2.10's probably brought in most of the changes. I think version 3, yeah. to me, is, is almost a kind of a reversioning to kind of settle down how it's actually going to work moving forward. Because to be quite honest, I think it's gone a bit, for, for the maintainers, I think it's got a little bit unwieldy. So I think I think from from what I've kind of seen of things, bearing in mind most of what they're trying to do is, is work with semantic versioning. And semantic versioning says that really, if you go from one minor version to the next minor version, things shouldn't change. So 2.9 to 2.10 shouldn't have broken as much as it did. <laughs> and that was the problem. Yeah. Because 2.10 was where they introduced this concept of collections. And an effect, in effect, 2.10 kind of was the three beta. I think it's probably... I think that's fair enough, yeah. Yeah. And it it wasn't that you couldn't use the old way of doing things, um, but because it introduced it, the documentation all changed and it changed substantially at that point. So where you had links to modules, which might have been called anything from, you know, debug through to... Oh, I don't know. Uh, apt install, or so apt, or yum, or DNF, or NMCLI, UFW. All of these things, all of these modules, whereas they were previously just called, you know, module underscore, and then the name of the module dot HTML in the documentation file. Um, it's now called something like community dot network dot UFW. Picked, made that one up at random. It might not be there, but that, or, you know, it might be ansible.builtin.apt. Um, 
uh, Ansible re- uh, refers to this as a fully qualified co- collection name. I was reading up about this uh, actually just last night. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's quite an interesting readme uh, on GitHub about this. Yeah. Now, the benefit to them having done that, at least that I can see, and Nick obviously approaches things from a slightly different perspective than me, but um, from my perspective, the, the main things that it's done is it means that what they had to do, and so I, I got bitten by this quite badly on a few projects I worked on last year. When a vendor, so I was working quite closely with Fortin at the time, um, when they were making changes to their their modules, they had to develop them in their own Git repo. Fine, no problem at all. And then they'd ask the Ansible maintainers to adopt those repo, that the code that was in those repos into the two dot whatever tagged release that they were putting out. I would then come along and say, ah, I've found a bug in this. Here's the, here's the bug in all its glory. And then they would go, all right, okay, well, that will be in the next release. When's that? Three to six months. Yeah. With the new collections model, Fortinet, because we're using them, uh, they now have Fortinet.fortios as their collection and Fortinet.40Manager as another collection. So that's two separate trees. They're not reliant on Ansible tagging a new release. They can just say, oh, you need the latest version of that because it's got all the bug fixes in it. The other thing, and I think Nick mentioned this before as well, is there was a whole lot of separate organizations all trying to contribute code. And it was horrific, I think, from the Ansible Ansible maintainers' perspective to actually keep on top of where everything was up to. So so just to put it into some context, like I said, you've got this fully qualified collection name now for a collection. So you've got Ansible.builtin, you've got community.general, there's a couple of other slightly more niche ones like community.network and community.storage, I think. Um, And then you've got the modules that have been released by specific vendors like Fortinet and others. Um, And so, so from the, from a development perspective, it makes life a load easier for the developers to kind of say, okay, we're cutting uh, a new release for this piece of hardware or, you know, as a result of these bug fixes or whatever. So it's here's the new thing that's dropped. They can keep on top of that. They can keep rolling stuff out. And what Ansible are then doing is they've got a set of blessed and approved collections that they're including as part of the Ansible release. So that's the 3.2, I think it is, or it might even be 3.3 they're up to now that they've come out with. But the actual Ansible base, so the bit that handles all the YAML files. Core. And is it core, yeah. sorry, yeah, Ansible core. That handles how they process YAML files, how they load Python modules, you know, how to read inventory files and stuff like that. That's all packaged and, sh- and, sh- and shipped. So that's on 2.9. something for that because that doesn't need to be changed anymore or it won't be changed very often because that's part of the core of how they handle things. 
So the only thing that really changes is the tasks block and the handlers block. Everything else now should be pretty static. And that's kind of, I think, how it should be. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. It sounds, you know, very similar to, I mean, you know, obviously not the same thing, but something you know, like more like Terraform or similar where you yeah. bring in a provider that, may, that you know, works for that cloud or works for that um, kit or something like that, rather than, yeah, as you say, you know, all being developed in one single place. I suppose the, on, the only question out of that one, I can't, I've got a vague feeling I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but is there a way of saying... You know, I am now bringing in the 40OS collection. Is there a way of saying that's now required as part of the project if someone's going to run it in future rather than just someone finding out as the runner? It's almost almost like a, you know, requirements or dependencies file. There is a requirements.txt file you can use about sort of Galaxy anyway. Um, right. And, and they, I believe now, they can point to Git. So, um, you know, you can do uh, updates and things like that much easier. Nice. You know, so um, we're we're kind of we've just done a large project over the past twelve months um, where we've um, built um, like a proof of concept Ansible server for them, so they can uh, get to grips with multiple users and you know writing their own code before really they go down the kind of AWX tower kind of path, and and we kind of. We've had to kind of get a, get to grips on how we're going to deploy Ansible almost per user, and how we're going to deploy all the uh, you know the Galaxy modules and, and things like that. And of course, this just happened around about the same time when you know two nine nine seven I think two and two ten were were kicking around. Um, so it's kind of it's it, it's made it uh, initially it made it more difficult but once we got our heads around it and we worked out we could you know um automate the installation of um particular let's call them modules and stuff with galaxy you know via um you know um skeleton files and stuff like that then uh, you know things have kind of become a little bit easier the other thing as well is that fundamentally ansible 3 still ships all the same modules to a greater or lesser extent than they did in 2.9 um, they've just got a different name because they're still committed to shipping all these blessed and approved modules. It's just that you need to call them slightly some, something slightly different. Where it really gains its power, at least for me, is that, yes, you can say, I need specific version X of this collection, that collection, and, and this collection over here. Uh, but what you can also say at a playbook level or a collection of playbooks level is you can create a collections directory and put into that directory all the collections you need. And as long as you make a change to your ansible.cfg file to say you can look in the same directory as the playbook for your collections as well, you can just treat them like roles. Yep. Ah, there you go. Yep. A libraries, libraries directory, I think it is. Does that mean I have to go now through all my code and then change it if I want to use above version 2.9 then? Is that what we're saying? Right. It depends. For the most case, there is a translation layer and it will say, I know that you mean, so like anything that's Ansible.builtin, it knows Ansible.builtin will always render to whatever it is it was called before. If you are using largely Ansible.builtin and say, for example, 
community.general or community.network, then what you can do is uh, near the top of your playbook, um, this is from memory, so you might have to you might have to tinker with it a bit. Um, so on, where you have hosts and then a list of hosts and you might have gather facts, false, um, and then you have the keyword tasks. Just before the keyword tasks or anywhere in that YAML block, uh, you can put collections and then um, an array, a list rather, of all the collection prefixes that you want it to load. So in the same way that you might in Python do import import requests and it loads everything that's called requests and you don't need to refer to it as requests dot something after that. It just knows that that's what they're all called. You, you just say collections uh, community.general and it goes, oh, right, okay, community.general. So what I'll do is I'll check in the community.general and ansible.builtin before I go and start looking for that as, as, as where I'm going to look for those those modules. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I've noticed, I mean, I've done a little bit on um, redoing my doc files and I've been doing that in Ansible recently and I've, I've still been using the old syntax. I've not been using anything from collections and because everything's mostly, you know, packaging stores and files, I've not had to change anything yet. Um, but yeah, if I went back to some of the networking stuff I was doing about a year ago, I'm sure most of that would be different now. So yeah. To, to be fair, the main thing really that you're going to struggle with is if you've got any documentation links to the uh, Ansible documentation pages for them because they've changed and they've not got redirects. So, for example, the 40OS policy stuff that I was doing a year ago, all of the paths to the documentation for those modules is now called 40net.40os dot whatever the module was called yeah so anything that i had that referred to say for example 40 os ip address i'm I'm, again i'm picking that one out of the air and it's probably wrong (laughs) but so where that was was called you know uh fgt underscore ip underscore address or something like that it's now called 40 net dot 40 os dot fgt dot underscore blah 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 so the documentation paths have all changed The good thing that that does bring, though, is that um, because they now have their own Git repositories, their own their own Galaxy collections pages, you can go and find the documentation, more up to date documentation for those blocks of code than the stuff that's in the Ansible documentation. And in theory, as well, they shouldn't move. Once they're in a known part of the tree, once they're in a known sort of set of Git repositories, you should be able to find them again pretty quickly. The FortiGate stuff that I've been working on, like I said, they've got their own read, read the docs site now, for example. So I can now just refer to that one rather than going and looking on the Ansible site. I guess at the moment it feels a bit like it, you know, just in the middle of a um, hard migration refactor and afterwards everything's now the new way and that's just the way you do it from now on kind of thing, I guess. And as I said, it comes down to the semantic versioning thing again, going from a major minor point release to a major minor point release, you expect no breakages. 
going from a major minor to a major minor, you expect there to be no degradation in what you're doing. Uh, but it's possible that you might see significant or partial improvements to the, um, uh, to the code base. But between major version and major version, you will see substantial differences to the way you operate. So that's why they've, that's why I believe they've gone from two to three is because of that semantic versioning change. And, and again, just to, to clarify, semantic versioning is where you see a, ver- a version number that is three numbers separated by dots. So the first number is your major version. So we've been talking about Ansible 2.9, 2.10 uh, and uh, three dot something. Um, that's actually, it's not, it's not actually 2.9 dot. Sorry, it's not actually 2.9, it's 2.9 dot six, seven, eight, or whatever. So that's your major, minor, and patch version number. So going from 2.9.6 to 2.9.7 is classed as a, a, a very minor, uh, classed as a patch difference. So this should just be literally just how things are operating underneath the, underneath the sort of code level. You shouldn't, you shouldn't actively see any differences between dot six and dot seven between 2.9.6 and 2.10.0 you might see a significant difference in the way that the code operates Um, but it should only be it shouldn't negatively impact anything you've got written already because you shouldn't be making breaking changes to to code at that 2.9 to 2.10 level that should all be the site. That should all still keep working fine. The main difference comes when you go to that three. So I think that's why they've made that that cut there as a difference. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That I, I think the other thing is it's just going to make it supremely easier for Ansel and Red Hat to keep a track on on everything now. So we should possibly see more things coming out of them soon enough. With, with this sort of stuff, um, and, and as you say, it allows the vendors to to roll their their code out more frequently. So I, I'm kind of looking forward to it, to be quite honest. Even though there's you know there's there's more headaches on on my side of it. Long term, it's going to be better. I, I suppose the other thing, I mean, it's kind of what you alluded to as well, where now it might the the whole having to you know raise a pull request and wait three to six months for that to actually go into the next release, kind of thing. It might have actually put some vendors off even um, committing code in the first place because they're just thinking if I've got to wait, you know, six months to actually see it and the customers to use it, we may as well just use something else. Whereas now you can do it as a collection and it could be out there in no time. People will be testing it. It may actually make make even more vendors bring stuff there. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- there's quite a few networking things that I've mentioned I was doing a bit last year with it, and um, there was quite a few of them where, you know, the, the Cisco stuff is pretty comprehensive, and the Juniper stuff and some of the other ones, you know, have pretty much every everything in there. But you get down to something like, you know, uh, some of some of the vendors like Extreme or Mictic, and there's about three commands available, and I think that's just because they've gone, you know what, it's just not worth it because we don't get to see whether it works or not. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's an element there where it's going to, you know, encourage more vendors and more people to contribute in the first place. So I think we've I think we've pretty uh, substantively uh, covered off Ansible and covered off the 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 
the CIS benchmarks and sort of the other sort of building stuff that, that we were talking about before. Once the, the gold brick builds are finished off, you said you, you do some automation of the CIS hardening and stuff like that. What, what happens next before, before those boxes are ready to go live? Yeah. So, um, what I found was quite difficult is that you need to prove to people that you've done the work you've done, even though you've got, you know, hundreds, thousands of lines of Ansible kicking around doing various different things for various, you know, Linux platforms and stuff like that. So I went hunting around and um, discovered uh, discover something called um, Server Spec, which is based on RSpec, which is a testing suite for Ruby. So what I ended up doing was taking those um, CIS 485-page documents and converting each one of those configuration items, let's call them, in those documents, you know, 280 of them, into a test. As you would if you were, um, you know, writing tests for any other kind of, you know, software that you were writing. So we, we, we were treating the builds then as, as just pieces of software. Um, what server spec is able to do, as you can say, um, is HTTPD installed. Um, so the tests are quite easy to write for the general stuff. And then when you want to do more difficult things like which SSHD ciphers or Macs have you got configured, then obviously you can get it to read your SSHD underscore config files and and basically pull out those lines and drop all those into some kind of array or list or something like that and then carve that up and check all those against a, a known list of, of good ciphers and things like that. Um, what we did then was we uh, I went hunting around really for um, something to display that because, of course, um, server spec like RSpec just writes everything to, uh, to the console and found a... Uh, a tool that enabled us to take that and produce um, pretty little HTML um, graphs and stuff like that. So we were then able to take that, print them out as PDFs, and uh, kind of attach those via documentation, obviously internally. On that, yes, we've 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 we checked all those things. Um, here's the output. This is the type of test. You know, links back to our internal Git repos. So uh, we can we can kind of prove that we did test it. Here's the test. Here's the you know the test in the documentation. Here's the test in the code, and here's the output of that test. So it kind of it, it it's really given everyone a, you know that warm fuzzy feeling that you, you you're trying to generate, which is uh, yeah you know we we have done our best. Here's here's everything. We're completely. Open source, but internally, <laughs> I think inner source is what we're, is what we're using. <laughs> so you you can see absolutely everything they've done, um, full access to everything, and it just enables the auditors and those people that are interested that they can they can get in and see the gubbings. And uh, we have we have checked, you know, we we written that Ansible, and you know, and Ansible is great for that sort of stuff, you know, for certain that configuration. But it's 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 quite nice to have a separate tool, sometimes in a separate language, to go and and check the work you've done. Um, you know, so that, that's kind of where we are with the testing. You mentioned uh, server spec. Have you come across InSpec? I think I landed 
I, I tried server spec and then you started using inspec instead. I think because inspec seemed like it was better supported at the time. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I, it may well be that I did use inspec, but server spec's what I've got written down in my documentation. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> you may well have caught me out there. <laughs> the the other thing to mention about testing is Molecule, which is written in Python and is more Pythony. Uh, Inspect and RSpec and so on are, are much more like natural language. Yeah. Um, so tests are potentially easier to write. Um, but yeah, uh, so the current place I'm, I am uh, uses Molecule, and I I looked at it about four years ago, and then had to relearn a load of stuff to to get my roles uh, passing. Uh, and the other thing I I was going to ask is, to, have you got a CI system to run the tests? Yeah, I I use um, Jenkins basically to to do the the final roll up, if you can imagine, because it it's not like I'm writing a Go app. Do you know what I mean? It's it, it's quite nice. You know, if you've got a Go app, you know you've got Docker on your local machine, and you you, you fiddle and mess around with it until it's, and then you push your code up, and you know um, it goes through the the CI system and stuff like that, and you know it gets all through those nice little gates that you you put in, and it's you know you you got your DevOpsy type um, processors. When you've got an operating system, you can you can try and get there quite well um almost but you know when, when you're waiting um let's say 15 minutes for your iso you know two three minutes for your iso to actually be spun up um to actually be created then you've got to ship that to um you know um your storage somewhere um then you're waiting 15 minutes maybe 30 minutes for your build to come up i can do all of that but invariably if it dies midway because obviously um, I was doing Ubuntu 20 only last week I think it was and it died because uh, something had slightly changed in between the versions we got we hadn't installed a particular file because I do trim the builds down as much there's no fat on the builds I do um, you know it's got everything in it that we expect to be in it so um, we do we don't ship very large um, OVAs or ISOs so things tend to break. It's very hard to kind of put that into some kind of CI system. I mean, you can, and I've done it, but you end up kind of, you know, um, just going, you'll get Jenkins to run what I've got, something called um, createiso.sha, a ton of flags, and it goes off and does everything I want. Now I can get Jenkins to run that for me, um, which means I've got to, you know, go to the browser and click on and, and stuff like that. Or I can literally just go up arrow, enter while I'm while I'm kind of, you know, debugging that build. So it, it's great when I want to, I know it all works. I'm ready to publish it. And then I can go to Jenkins and go from start to finish, do the whole process for me, you know, which is around about six to eight steps. Um, you know, based on all the shell scripts that I've got that, you know, pushes things here, there and everywhere. Um, but if one of those steps breaks, then I find it's just easier for me to kind of go in via the console, you know, the terminal session somewhere and, and run that step from there. Yeah. Just to put a little bit more context around that, 
I think when Nick was explaining to me the other day about how many builds he's actually doing. So bearing in mind, you've got, say for example, you're doing Ubuntu 2004 and 1804 because they're your two long-term supported releases. You've got, you've got Red Hat 7 and 8, and then you've got, I can't remember exactly which other, which other OSs there were, but, um, plus that's got to go across all the cloud platforms that we support and it's got to go across physical hardware. So you've got ISOs to, that can be burnt and you've got OVA files. I think Nick was saying that, um, so, so effectively, if you imagine the work that he's doing sort of for the, the hour to hour, the, the, if you were to compare it back to that go, that go application thing before, you know, this is almost like the, the running it locally on your, on your machine Docker kind of style stuff. He's doing that against a single machine in a, in a, a physical machine in a data center. But then once he's confirmed that build works for that one machine, he's then, I think you said it was something like 67 builds. You're yeah, doing? we, we do quite a, quite a few. It, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like having a go app running on multiple different backend, backends of go with multiple dependent, you know, go dependencies <laughs> on different versions of Docker. Then somebody wants the same application in PHP and Ruby. And can you also do that in Podman, OpenShift? And, and, and it, it's, it's, it, the, the landscape's quite wide and varied. Um, you know, and, and it's, and, and that's why in the, in the end, you know, we, we only started with Red Hat 6. You know, um, and and then we went to Red Hat Seven when that came out, and and because of you know, every, everything was written initially in Kickstart scripts, which means everything was backed out then to shell scripts and things like that, and then obviously we went cloud, and that became more different. But it, it all went to Ansible, then it became a lot more. So then we needed Jenkins, um, you know. So it, it's kind of it's always the next step, the next add-on, the next, you know, the, the next logical step in, in, in how to do it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's quite nice. You get to the end of the week and you go, you know, Red at 7, the big button in Jenkins, Red at 7, publish. And it goes off and does all the stuff. And and, and we automate it down to the, the end where we're talking to Microsoft SharePoint to fill in a spreadsheet which contains, you know, um, the SHA-256 sums and the MD5 sums and the versions that we pulled out of the files on the boxes and stuff that we've stored elsewhere and links to the latest tests and stuff like that. So we, I, I am definitely a lazy engineer that once I know what the process is, I'm going to automate that so I don't have to do that bit again. You know, so we, uh, we, we, we do try hard to automate and, uh, you know, get, get away with doing as little as possible in the end. That's what computers are for. <laughs> well, initially they were, yeah. <laughs> Out of interest, how often do the Sys benchmarks change? So do, uh, have you had to go back and change much of the playbooks at all or any of the tests, or is it you know pretty static and it's more making sure each OS fits that? Yeah, it's the Sys benchmarks change occasionally. I find that invariably... More likely often than not, it will be a new distribution comes out. So let's say Ubuntu 20 or CentOS 8 stream comes out. And then you start from scratch. You, you can take bits because obviously CentOS 8 is based. Yeah. 
I'll say based on Red Hat 8, but you know what I mean. So you can take all your Red Hat 8 stuff and apply that over the top and then kind of go, oh, that didn't work. That did, but that's not quite right. So then you can go back to your SysBank marks and then go through all the ticks. So you can, you can kind of, there's a lot of reuse. Um, but in, invariably the, the work that catches me out every time I roll these out, and when we do it every six months, and you can imagine you wouldn't want to do it more frequently than that anyway for the amount of work that's involved. Um, that you'll, you'll, you'll take the, I don't know, Ubuntu 18 build or Red Hat 8 build or something on, on one of the cloud platforms. And for some reason that you won't get down to the reason why it's been made, nobody will tell you why, something has slightly changed or applications that you expected to be in there have been in there for a very long time and now not there or um, you know maybe an application's changed slightly and you weren't aware of that so you end up kind of adding another little ansible role in um, or you update an ansible role to make another check or there's there's always funny little things like you know between ubuntu 18 and ubuntu 20 some apps have got different configs uh, installed in slightly different ways so um, things that did work don't work now. So your Ubuntu hardening play um, has got a lot of if distribution is, if version is, you know, or I should say when, yeah. you know, you, you kind of, you're kind of adding uh, something that, let's say a, a particular task in a particular role, um, maybe add one or two things in it. All of a sudden, it's now got four and it's got a block around it and it's got a win at the bottom because, of course, it's saying, well, actually, now if it's Ubuntu 20, you've got to do it this way. And when it was Ubuntu 18, you've got to do it that way. So yeah. your code tends to kind of expand, um, or at least that's the way I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping the original stuff um, as is. Um, you know, and, and when Ubuntu 18, when we decide we're not going to support Ubuntu 18, then, you know, those bits of code can be dropped, um, you know, as, as and when. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you just, you just find, I find that the first thing I do for, for, for when I get around to the, the, the next kind of rollout, before I do anything else, before I look at anything else, I just try and build from scratch with everything they've already got, every single machine. So I have a, um, a ton of, um, terminals open. Um, and it will be, you know, um, build.shirt Ubuntu 20. That's all I need to tell it because, of course, everything else is, you know, programmed into it. And it will it'll go off and do it wherever I tell it to go off and do it. And then most things will come up. Um, they'll either come up and they'll run some tests and then there'll be a failed test. And you'll be scratching your head on that. Or it will just not build, you know, an Ansible of timed out somewhere or, or, or something like that. You know, so and, and then and then that that enables you then to start digging into the logs and you can ban board all of a sudden that's maybe got three feature requests and occasionally one bug in it. Now it's got twenty or thirty things in it <laughs> because all of a sudden you're like you're just copying log lines out of you know syslog and and throwing that into your canvas, say scratching it. Well, I've got to look at that next, and I've got to look at that. So uh, you know, it's 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 lovely when. You know, things just run through and you get brilliant. I can just, you know, that's going out today, you know, um, you know, and you can hit that publish button and off it goes and does it. But um, invariably, there's a lot of rework and stuff in various places. Yeah. But that's the fun of it. 
Yeah, if it, if, if it all worked, it wouldn't be fun, would it? Yeah, and then, and then everybody could do it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I do sometimes feel tough when I write an Ansible role and it works first time, though. I've never been able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, usually that means I've done something wrong if it works. I'm just looking, just going, no, there's something missing. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. Something's fishy. Yeah. There's some stuff here in the list of stuff to talk about, about net data. So I wonder if anyone uh, wants to mention anything about that. Yeah, so this is me. Um, I've been playing with this recently. Um, I installed it on a a couple of boxes a while back. And what it is, is a a kind of self-contained system, which you install on a a given server um, or VM or whatever. Um, It can be installed in other kind of contexts, but um, server is the kind of, I guess where it first first came along and it does basically metrics collection um looking at your stuff that your kernel is saying and so on and it not only collects these metrics but it, it has a its its own internal web server with which to display these metrics now when I first used it it it, it fired up this web web server on localhost uh, a given port number it's actually one nine 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 um so you could go you could have have this installed and then you know ssh that server and forward that port and you'd be able to see it on uh for instance localhost uh 19999 um now there's a bit of fun uh, the well there's there's a, a software as a service called netdata cloud where you can uh basically you, so you, you install the NetData agent and you allow it to talk to NetData Cloud and you can view these metrics in, in the NetData Cloud interface. So to me, um, with my freelance clients and lots of servers dotted, dotted around the place, this makes a lot more sense than, you know, setting up an SSH tunnel in, environment to view all these separate NetData instances. So yeah, it's been it's been quite cool. I've I've installed it on a few client servers, and um, it's, uh, it's it's working quite well. Yeah, it's it's so it's it's quite a comprehensive web GUI. If anyone's looked at it, it's got sort of native support for things like Prometheus. I think I think Influx and other time series databases. So you can basically install that data on on a server and point Prometheus at it. That's pretty good. I wanted to just uh, point out Net NetData Cloud. It, it's pretty much free, uh, from what I can tell. Apparently, their business model is just to kind of sell stuff to enterprises. So things like you know trends across your entire VM estate or or, or, or that kind of thing. It's also got um, support for Kubernetes, and you can install the agent in Docker. Now. I haven't tried either of those. The Kubernetes thing seemed a bit heavy on my poor little K3S server. Um, the fan started spinning up after I installed the agent. So, I, well, well it's, the agent is just a, takes the form of a couple of pods that, that go into your Kubernetes cluster. Um, but yeah, I mean, the first impressions of it are pretty good. And it kind of, I, I was kind of thinking of setting up a Prometheus infrastructure to do this, but I had, issues with the way prometheus works is by scraping an endpoint and you have to do things like setting up an ssl tunnel to do that 
Whereas with NetData Cloud, you just install the agent and it's, and you, you tell it that it's allowed to talk to NetData Cloud. Uh, and you can see all your, all your graphs there with, with no, with very little setup. I've already done a, an Ansible role for it. Works pretty well. Um, couple of other things to mention. The, the, the default installer is, uh, it, it compiles from source. Um, you know, does a, does a kind of curl, curls a bash script and runs it. There is a, a method of installing either a deb or an RPM. Uh, but I haven't tested that. Uh, and yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much it from my, my research so far. And the other thing is you can, you, so you have, a, it has a notion, it calls them more war rooms, but it's just a way of dividing, um, different, uh, sets of servers up and you can, uh, give access to other email addresses to, to, to given war rooms, as they call it. Uh, so you can, you can have, it's like a multi-tenant thing. You can allow, I, for instance, I can allow a client to look at only their servers in that data cloud. Um, so yeah, it's pretty cool. So what, what sort of data is it, is it producing for you? It's kind of the, this sort of kernel level stuff, uh, stuff that the kernel can pick up, uh, load average, uh, stuff in the prop file system and sensor data and things like that. But you, you, it does have plugins for, you know, application type stuff like PHP is, is one that I'm interested in because a lot of my clients run PHP, but there's, there's bits of configuration you have to do to, to enable that, which which I haven't done yet. I had a bit of a play with net data a couple of years ago now, and it was it was more at the time just because you know it was pretty graphs on my servers at that point, and yeah, that at that time I know that um, one it ran a little heavy on my servers, but it was okay, um, and also once I realised it could do the Prometheus endpoint side, and I was getting into Prometheus at the time, I started using that, and then I realised I was getting everything that'd be getting through the Node exporter anyway. But obviously, that was just my personal setup, so yeah. Now, in the sense of, you know, having a bit of a managed offering, it's probably, it sounds like it's a really good offering. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just taken away the kind of the um, time it would take to set up that Prometheus infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and especially because the, these servers are kind of scattered all over the internet. Yeah. Um, all you have to do is reach out to them, install this agent, and and say it's allowed to talk to NetData Cloud, and you, you've got your, your metrics coming in, which is uh, which is pretty good. And a kind of low friction and uh, e- easy to accomplish, <laughs> uh, unlike maybe Prometheus. Although yeah. Prometheus is okay, but it's it's kind of another another set of things to learn to actually get to that point. Oh yeah, definitely. So yeah, I, I recommend NetData and NetData Cloud. Cool. We've talked a lot about Terraform um, on the show um, a few times. And what Terraform is, is what they call infrastructure as code. So rather than your infrastructure being something you go in and click to create or you go in and manually install, um, you know, boot up an OS or go into a cloud provider and click click somewhere to say, I want this virtual machine or something similar to that. Um, infrastructure as code is where everything you want is defined as code. So, you know, your virtual machines that you want, your firewall policies, all that kind of thing. Um, Terraform is probably the most known in the space, at least when it comes to cloud providers and, um, you know, software as a service. So, 
um, uh, toy out of HashCorp, and it is it manages the resources and it also manages state and dependencies. So it isn't just a you know you're going to tell the tool what to do. You say what you want the end state to be, and Terraform gets you there. So you're describing the final state. Um, recently, I've been playing with something called Plumi, which is in the same vein as Terraform. But whereas Terraform has its own language, which is called the HashiCorp configuration language, and with that you are defining your resources um, in a, what they call a domain-specific language. So it's essentially the way HashiCorp say you define this. Pulumi instead makes it so you can use programming languages. So currently it supports TypeScript, JavaScript, Python, C Sharp, and Go. So it means that rather than defining your resources as um, a, as I say, a language that HashiCorp have come out with, it's done with something you either already know or is potentially more flexible. So a good example of what I've used recently is I used it to create a firewall, but I wanted to just allow my own IP in there while I was testing something. So I built a function in Go that gets my IP from ifconfig.co and then put that into the firewall as an output rot. Whereas in um, something like Terraform, that's a bit more difficult to do. There's, there'll be ways of doing it, but it's not natural to do it in that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, in a programming language, there's functions everywhere. There's, um, you know, your if statements are the way you'd, you would build it for anything else. And it's it, it's been very powerful from what I've found so far. And, you know, I've, I've not even started scratching the surface on it. Um, and yeah, you can also, you, you can integrate it with other code as well. So if you've got code that does... I don't know, but needs to um, test an API um, within that um, same test. You could actually spin up the API with um, Pulumi or at least a copy of it. Or, you know, you could use, you could build your own self-service platform that um, it and just bring in these Pulumi modules and the, the Pulumi itself will build the infrastructure for you to test. And the interesting thing with a lot of the Pulumi um, they are called providers in a similar way that Terraform is. A lot of the providers on the back end are actually the same ones that Terraform uses. So um, if you are talking to something in, say, I don't, I don't know, as, as an example out there, Proxmox or Cloud in it or, you know, ju- just random ones like that, they are the same ones that Terraform uses. So um, it means that, you know, they're a bit more battle tested than someone that's created it themselves. So. Yeah, I've been having a lot of fun with that recently because, as I say, you've got more flexibility there in what you're able to do. So, you know, Terraform's way of doing conditionals um, is interesting. And, you know, sometimes you look at it and just go, I don't entirely get what it's trying to do. Whereas, you know, if you're trying to do an unconditional in Go, it's, you know, if or, you know, a switch statement or a case or, you know, if it's in Python, Python, you just go, if this, then what whatever kind of thing so it's yeah as i say i'm really enjoying it at the moment and um yeah it's, it's quite fun does it work by kind of um so in python you import a module to do something is that how you do pulumi so you basically import pulumi or is it equivalent to that in the other languages more or less yeah i mean there's they've kind of got like an easy start start thing there they've got a cli um in the same way of terraform so a cli application um and with that you you do your standard things like you would with like a terraform apply would be a pulumi up um similar things like that but you can also do a pulumi new 
and then put after it the provider you want and then the language that you want it in. So uh, as an example, recently, I've been doing a little bit of Equinix Metal in my own time, um, which is based on the old packet. Um, well, sorry, uh, Equinix bought out packet and then they call that Equinix Metal, which is bare metal as a service. And um, all you do is do Plume New, Equinix dash metal dash go. And then that builds almost like a skeleton um code and it, it has all the modules that you need as part of that to start defining it and it's yeah it's, it's just a module like anything else and again if you want to do it in python it would go go and install all the pip uh, go to pip and install all the modules you need to do it as well so um or you know uh, there's a couple of them where they haven't got the examples there so you just have to do it yourself which you know a little bit more effort but Again, you know, if it's Python, it's a pip free away. If it's Go, it's a, a Go getaway to get the uh, modules that you need. One of the things that I found when I was looking at the difference between using Ansible for provisioning infrastructure and Terraform is that because Ansible is sort of very programmatic, you've kind of got step one, perform action ABC, and then step two, perform action DEF. Um, Terraform kind of goes, well, to, in order to, to create a resource DEF, I need to run ABC first. So it will kind of draw that map out and it will run things in parallel for you. Does Pulumi work in the same way as Ansible or does it work in more the same way as It's It's more the same way as Terraform. So, yeah, it's essentially, um, yeah, you're describing the state that you want to end up in. So um, desired state and uh, Pulumi in the, ba- in the background will get the infrastructure and you know everything it needs to get to the point that you've described so in the same way that terraform does which is why they're positioning themselves a lot of the time against terraform or at least you know as an alternative because it's the same kind of approach um for how you get the infrastructure and how you create it as i say uh, a desired state that you want to reach and it will take care of it in the back end but instead of being Terraform's language, you're using a language that you may be more familiar with or have more flexibility with. Or I guess if you're a developer, it allows you to speak a language, a, a language you understand. Whereas... It, exactly. And if anything, it's, um, you know, I've been tinkering with Go for, um, you know, a few months last year, a few months the year before, but not really got into it. Um, you know, on a de- on a day to day basis, but actually doing this, I now seem to understand Go more because I'm going. I know what I want, and I know what it looks like in Terraform. How do I do that in Plume? And it's actually taught me Go in the process. So yeah, it's uh, it's actually been really useful in that sense as well. Maybe it's a way that I can finally learn Python without um, <laughs> having yeah. to stop and stop what I'm doing and learn something else. <laughs> yeah, now it's uh, the the Python side is. I'd say so far from what I've seen in it, they primarily targeted targeted TypeScript and JavaScript as the main um, ways to do to begin with. So those were the primary supported languages. And then um, Python was next on that one. And Python is really well supported by Plumi. Um, Go is getting there. There's a few examples that they have that don't have Go code in there. And then I think C Sharp is probably on a similar level as well. But, you know, the, the Python side, you look at it, and in some ways, it looks very similar to the Terraform you build because you use very similar name variables. It's you know quite quite similar in what you define, but if you need to do a loop, it's you know for whatever in whatever, and then do it rather than you know trying to work out Terraform's way of doing it. And 
and that kind of thing. As I say, adding arbitrary functions again is quite simple. Well, it, as long as you know the language. Um, but yeah, adding an arbitrary function rather than to call out something, create your own module that you, that you might have to do in Terraform. You just create that function within the same code and just call it. Interesting. That sounds interesting. I think I might need to go and have a look at the one. Um, so there's a quick item here about Tinkerbell. Does anyone want to quickly mention about that? Yeah, so it's me again. Um, I just came across this in the the great DevOps Weekly newsletter. Um, I think uh, you were just talking about Equinix there, um, Stu. Yes. It, it's from them, and it's basically uh, uh, five, well, looking at the webpage here, five microservices that help you do bare metal provisioning. Um, which is, which is obviously what, um, packet we're, we're concerned with. Um, so there's, uh, th- those five microservices are Tink, which is a provisioning workflow engine, Boots, which, which is a DHCP and IPixie server, Hegel, which is a metadata service, OSIE, which is an OS install environment. So like your kickstart kind of environment and something called PBNJ, which, uh, looking at the, uh, the blurb, talks to the BMCs, so they kind of lights out uh, low-level hardware that can do things like um, have keyboard input and video, video output and network, uh, low-level network stuff. Now, I haven't had a look at this, but I, I, I just sort of looked at the link in DevOps Weekly, but it does sound really interesting for anyone that's doing that kind of bare metal stuff because the tools that are around are quite old and crusty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and this looks really interesting for that kind of thing. So I just wanted to uh, flag that up really for, for our listeners. I'll add a couple of bits of that because I've actually been looking into it a bit recently. Um, I suppose for background, um, I've been in a, a part of one of the communities that um, someone who works for Equinix Metal is part of. So it's that, that, a guy called David McKay. He's uh, goes by Raw Code. If you go on YouTube, for look for his videos. There's lots. He goes through pretty much everything in Kubernetes. Um, a lot of projects come and talk to him about it. And he's um, also a member of the CNCF as well. Um, but because of that, they've also given a, a bit of spotlight onto Equinix, uh, uh, sorry, onto Tinkerbell, because, um, yeah, um, they are trying to, well, one, I've noticed when spinning up a couple of things on Equinix Metal, it actually references Tinkerbell already, so it's already running there, so you know it works. Um, but also they're looking to integrate um, into something called Cluster API for Kubernetes, which is where it you can define a cluster um, and how it should start, what it should contain, that kind of thing. Basically, a way of defining the cluster itself in Kubernetes, not just you know what to do after the Kubernetes cluster is created. And right now, the way of doing that on bare metal is very manual. And Tinkerbell's trying to get to a point where they can become almost the de facto standard for if I'm doing it on bare metal, I would use Tinkerbell to create that Kubernetes um cluster for me um and just define that as code to do so so yeah um there seems to be a lot of movement around tinkerbell at the moment it's, it looks very interesting again it sounds like we're getting close to the end of the show yeah thank you nick we- for coming on <laughs> oh, yeah very much so yeah, it was great and nick is on our telegram group isn't he he is indeed yeah ask any questions oh fantastic that was that saves me asking you uh, <laughs> So whilst we're, whilst we're mentioning uh, our community, um, I'd like to mention, uh, if, if you don't already know, Dave does our audio production uh, and we're also members 
of the Other Side Podcast Network. And if you want to know more about some of the other podcasts that are on that network, you should have a look at otherside.network for some more details. I'd like to thank our Patreons, who are Andalmo, Andy, Dave, Maha, Mike, Stu, yeah, that one, and Stuart, mm-hmm. not that one, uh, and Yannick. Thanks to all of you for uh, keeping us on the uh, on the internets. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, if you want to send any feedback about this episode, good or bad, or any of the other episodes, anything you want us to talk about, or if you just want to tell us to stop talking, um, just send that to mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk. And um, you can also join our Telegram, which has already been mentioned, and the link is in the show notes, um, or go to our website, which is adminadminpodcast.co.uk. Yeah, if you've got any questions you want answered, contact us by our email or in our telegram group and we'll try and answer your question in the next show. So thanks for that. Thanks very much. And uh, once again, thank you to Nick. And uh, we'll speak to you all again soon. Yeah, see you all soon, guys. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye.